My name is Brett, I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Happy Father's Day, fathers. Glad for all you do. Glad for who you are. It means a lot. And hopefully my message today will help you be a better father and connect to your fathers better. But before I get into my message, I want to show you the people that I father. Uh, most of you, I, you know, you just, you, you live in the forest, and so you don't see it all because of the trees. And most of you have never seen my family. So, here they are. <clears throat> Those are all my people. So, far left, my beautiful daughter-in-law, Elizabeth, married to my son, who's Joseph, 26 year old, years old. They're both living in New York. And they're doing well up there, got jobs, and have not called me for a dime, so hallelujah. Next to my son Joseph, they're worshiping God, by the way, they love God with all their heart. Next to my son Joseph is our daughter Meredith. The mother was 16, the daddy was 15, they came to us, and she was eight months pregnant, said, could anybody adopt our baby? And so Cynthia and I said, okay, we'll make it happen. So we brought her home from the hospital, and she's been ours since day one. Beautiful daughter. She's 20 years old. She's at Liberty University as a sophomore. Next to her is my 21-year-old son, Garrison. He's at Shenandoah University. He is a psychology major, loving God, doing great stuff. He's doing an internship over to Nova this summer. Next to him is my son, Tellus, who is an actor. He eh, wants to be an actor. <laughs> He's at Virginia Commonwealth as a freshman, rising sophomore. And uh, he's doing fabulous, loves missions and loves God. Next to him in the back is my son Brian, who graduated from JMU. Yes, I am supporting the entire state of Virginia. <laughs> Without me, they go bankrupt. Whole educational institution, just straight under. He just graduated from JMU, so that's one less tuition I'm happy about. And he is in Singapore right now, serving. Remember Rachel Long came and preached to us? He's doing an internship with her. Fabulous, really good. And then the baby in the front there on the right-hand side, that's Grant. He's 14. He's a rising freshman going to Freedom High School this year. And, of course, there's me. There's my beautiful wife, Cynthia, and then my beautiful daughter, Brooke, who is 17 years old, a rising senior, and uh, loves missions, loves God, and trying to figure out how to graduate next year and cost me more money. So <laughs> that's my family. The title of the message today is Unfathered Fathers, Unfathered Fathers. So turn over to um, Judges chapter 11, and if you, you, you weren't counting, that is seven, seven kids and then my daughter-in-law is eight. <laughs> Judges 11, we're going to look at a man named Jephthah. Again, the title of the message today is Unfathered Fathers. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's. And I shall offer it up as a burnt offering. <clears throat> Excuse me, my phone went crazy. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them with a very great slaughter. 
from Aurora to the entrance of Mineth, 20 cities, as far as Abel, Keremem. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. And when Jephthah came to the house at Mitzvah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. Verse 35. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And you're among those who trouble me, for I've given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So she said, she said to him, My father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity. I and my companions. Verse 38. Then he said, Go, and he sent her away for two months. And she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel, verse 40, that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, for four days in a year. Lord, have your way. Help us as we study. This isn't the happiest of passages. And you're, you're saying to yourself, really, Pastor, on Father's Day? Really? Jephthah was quite a man. And you have to understand the times in which he lived. It was the time of the judges. And the judges was a period when most tribes and family members did what was right in their own eyes. It was rare that they had a national leader that rose up and coalesced the entire nation. Moses was the first judge. After him came Joshua. After him, a man named Othniel. But then after that, it was kind of a scattered moment. Every once in a while, you'd have somebody rise up who had some degree of influence and anointing to lead. And many tribes would gather around that person. But rarely did you have all 12 come together. But yet they were seen as the, the primary leader of the nation because they had the greatest anointing on their lives. There wasn't this grand succession from Moses to Joshua to Othniel and then to the su subsequent judges. It's just whoever happened to be the guy at the time. And most tribes just did what they could to survive without leadership. Jephthah, Jephthah comes into to leadership in that environment. And we're going to look at the prior verses of this book in order to understand something about what made him pray this prayer. Because this is one of the strangest prayers in the Bible. And we're going to look at the, we're going to look at the nature of the prayer and see what the meaning might be beyond the actual facts. First of all, Jephthah, it says in verses 1 through 3, was born to a man named Gilead. Now... As we know in later books, Gilead happened to be a pretty major city in the tribe of Manasseh. And Gilead seemed to have been a nobleman in the tribe of Manasseh. And he had some influence, some sway over what the tribe should do. Gilead was married, and he had sons. 
But as men who don't follow God as closely as they should, as men who don't follow God as closely as they should do, he strayed. And he found a, a woman who works at night. And he slept with her. And she had a baby. And that baby was Jephthah. Jephthah lived with his mama. Generally speaking, if that happened, you didn't bring that child into your home. So he lived with his mama. Though Gilead was married and had sons, Gilead really never fathered Jephthah. And so Jephthah, for the most part, was unfathered. But it wasn't just that Gilead, his dad, wasn't around. It's who was around that helped shape Jephthah. Because he still had to grow up in his mama's house who was still working. So you can imagine the mindset this guy grew up with. Ten guys a day. Sleeping with his version of a baseball bat under his bed because at the age of six he could not stand any longer to hear his mama cry and get beat. He grew up a fighter for the most part. I can't prove that, but I do know what happens to kids who grow up in that kind of environment. Can you believe the conversations that his peers would have when he went to school? Oh, yeah, we know your mama. My daddy saw your mama last night. This kid built up defenses constantly because he was trying to protect himself and his mama. And when he became a teenager, I promise you, he developed some skill sets so that if anybody were to touch his mama wrongly, they would pay. I think any young man who began to feel his oats would want to do the same thing. This kind of environment shaped him in such a way that it, it allowed him to then grow into something that nobody thought he would be. But there were some other circumstances that kind of propelled him into his position of leadership. When, it, when the time came to, to divide up the inheritance and Gilead was giving it out to his sons, his sons, Jephthah's half-brothers, came to Jephthah and said, you have no portion with us. We're not going to divide our inheritance with you because you are the son of a harlot. Now, you talk about some mean-spirited kids, siblings. But as, as bad as that was, where was daddy? It's not like he had died yet. Where was daddy to fight for the boy he sired? Say, no, 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 you can't take that away. That's my decision, not yours. He gets this. And if even, even if Gilead had died, why wouldn't there be some provision before he died in his will to say, that boy over there, he gets as much as every one of you all. Amen. But we see Gilead completely out of the picture. No attendance given to his son at all. And he let his boys of his wife begin to, to set the tone for how the relationship would be with Jephthah. And I'm not quite sure how you grew up. I don't know whether your dad was around or not, and even if he was around, whether he was good. I don't know if you were abused. I don't know what matter of dysfunction you grew up in, but I do know this, that all houses have dysfunction. It's just a matter of degree. Even the best homes have issues. True, there are more 
intense issues than other ones. But everybody has to overcome something in your growing up. Everybody. And it cannot be overcome by the affirmation of man, nor by your gifting to accomplish things in the earth. And we men want to feel good about what we do, don't we? Yes, we do. I mean, we love it when our wives tell us we're great and we're providers, and we love it when our kids say Happy Father's Day. But we, we rarely get, get more significant stroking than when we have accomplished something in our employ. We feel like we matter now. We feel like we've, we, we've, we have arrived. When we get a promotion that brings us to another level, it does something for us. Unlike any other environment, when a preacher preaches well, he walks off the stage with his head high and his chest out, knowing he has served his God well. Performance strokes a man's ego when he does things right. Helps him feel like he's, he's worthwhile for being on the planet. Now, you women, that may not be the case with you, but that's how a man is wired. That's what makes us hum, doing things. Should we get all of our identity from what we do? No, but still we get a lot. What's the first thing God told Adam? Work. First thing, tend the garden. He had him work before he was married. Great pattern. Great pattern. Get a job. Work. Men work. That's what we do. Don't take all of my identity from what I do. I get it from God, but I really get happy when I do stuff well. There ain't nothing wrong with that. Jephthah was ostracized by his family. And you talk about being abandoned. We're going to talk about four things today. Being abandoned. What it means to be accepted. What it means to be anointed. And then what it means to be filled with anxiety. He was abandoned. Abandoned and rejected by his dad. Rejected by his brothers. His whole family said, get out of here. And that does something on the inside of a man. Something that no kind of affirmation from people. No pats on the back. And not enough good, good, good job. Good job done will fix. Only God can fix the rejection that's on the inside. And Jephthah had a deep one. So deep was it that when he was cast out from his family, he went out and found, it says, worthless men that gathered themselves to him. Now, it doesn't mean that they were actually worthless in the sense that they had no value of being on the planet. It meant that these were guys that were either in debt, reckless, thieves, part of a gang. That kind of people drew themselves. They were drawn to Jephthah. And generally, if, if, if you find somebody running with the wrong crowd, it's because they're the wrong person. They fit. Because people who are virtuous, generally speaking, either change the crowd they're running with or they don't run with them. So if somebody's running with the wrong crowd, it's because they fit. <laughs> Jephthah fit. But he was so skilled at what he did, he became their leader. So he didn't have a whole lot of character on the inside, probably, because you got a lot of character. Those are not the kind of guys you want to hang out with all the time. But he did have some skill sets, and those were honed from making sure he defended mama every day of his life. He, I, I don't know how many fights he got in at school, but it had to be a lot. Everybody talking about his mama, and you don't talk about a boy's mama. 
It, it doesn't matter if you win the fight. At least you fought. But his brothers didn't realize they made a huge mistake because war was on the horizon and a people named Ammon was coming. And they were coming to take over the territory which Gilead and Manasseh had. And they were right there on the border. And all the, the sons now, because it seems that Gilead had gone from the scene, he had passed on. All the sons gathered together and said, uh, our militia is not as strong as it needs to be, and we, we need some help. And they put their best minds together and came up with the idea of going to get Jephthah. So they sent a message to Jephthah and said, uh, yeah, about that um, rejection thing and inheritance thing, uh, yeah. Sorry, can we talk? Because, like, there's some people that want to, like, kill us, and we need help. Jephthah said, oh, you like me now. You like me now. Uh, and what, what, what do I get out of this? He said, you'll be our head. Oh, not only does he have an inheritance now, but he's in charge. You'll be in charge of this. They didn't know what to say about king because they didn't have king in the land. But well, they said, you'll be in charge of everything. You'll be our head. He said, really? He said, I'll take that job. I'll take that job. And so Jephthah is reaccepted. He is brought back in to the world that kicked him out. And you would think that that kind of a pat on the back and acceptance and affirmation would begin to fix things on the inside. But it doesn't because only God can fix stuff that's broken on the inside of you. Rejection cannot be fixed by other people's affirmation. And if you go around feeling rejected on the inside, thinking that somebody, some man, some woman, some employer is going to fix that by telling you how great you are, you are sadly wrong and you will go around for the rest of your days looking for people to say how great you are and trying to do everything you can to please them to get that affirmation. Pleasing men and not God. All because you're broken on the inside. Rejection can't be fixed by other people telling you you're great. It has to be fixed by God ministering to you and healing you. You'll be our head. So he says, great. And then he communicates with Ammon. And he writes a note. He says, I understand you got some issues with us. Well... Please understand that this land was given to us by our God. And let me give you some history of how we got here. When we came out of Egypt, we went here, we went there. Then we went there, we went there, we went there, we went there. We settled here, then we moved there, and now we're here. Never once did we go through your territory. This was never yours. So you have no right to come and say that it should be yours now. Ammon said, I ain't interested in your history. We're coming to get it. And it says then that the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Y'all, it doesn't get much better outwardly that when people say you're great and everybody was saying, Jephthah, Jephthah, he's our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. <laughs> Cheerleaders, as he was going through the streets, whoa, you're the champion, Jephthah. Ain't nobody like you. You're the greatest. You're the greatest. Thank you for coming back home. Oh, you the man. I never thought you should have left. My, my opinion. That's right. You, you are right. You are right by me. You are right by me. Everybody was on the bandwagon. And then the Spirit of God comes on them. 
When you have the affirmation of earth and the affirmation of heaven, it doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any better. For task completion, it does not get any better. You don't need anything else. You don't need to offer to God anything else. You don't need to sacrifice anything else. You don't need to prepare any other way. If people have said, we are behind you 100%, and God came on you for the specific purpose of accomplishing what he has called you to do and what you desire to do, you need nothing else. Now, all of that is, is presupposing that you're already skilled, that you're competent in your job, that somebody hired you because you have some, some sets that can really bring them value. And, and Jephthah was skilled. He was a skilled warrior. So it's not that you need nothing else. It's that all those things necessary for God to anoint you to accomplish what you are already skilled to do now preside in your life. And there are other people who are saying, go, we believe in you. You're our man. There is nothing more you need to accomplish the task than that. That's all you get and it's all you need. It's amazing. But it still doesn't fix the inside. Doesn't fix it. Doesn't fix it. And I, I know some people who can preach the paint off the wall. They are so anointed. Their, their elocution is just amazing. Their ability to wordsmith and bring application in their hermeneutic and their exegesis and pulling out passages that you never thought had anything to do with that passage and their insight. You just say, oh, God, when I grow up, I want to be there. Amazing communicators. But when they step down from the stage, their wives don't want to be with them. Their kids don't want to associate with them. Their friends say, I'm not his friend. I'm his employee. Functionally, when it comes to the anointing to minister to people off the chain. Relationally, an absolute mess. Because they relied upon the anointing to substitute for character. They relied upon the anointing to substitute for the healing that they needed on the inside when they were broken. And that is not what the anointing is for. Now, let me complete that statement. In the New Testament, it says the anointing abides within. In the Old Testament, the anointing came upon. The intended purpose of the anointing is so that you can be healed inside and effective outside. But people never concentrate on the inside because they are more desiring the affirmation of people. And we love the stroking of job complete. And so we concentrate only on the outside. And we ignore the primary purpose of Jesus being on the inside of us. And that is that he makes us like him. More secure, more whole, more right every day, more loving, prioritized well. So that we don't accomplish things that are unnecessary and leave the, the necessary unaccomplished. The Spirit of God came on him. The people said, you're our guy. And Jephthah winds up praying this prayer. Lord, if you will give me victory, I'll make sure that the first thing that comes out of my house is sacrificed to you. And as he's saying these words, I can hear God from heaven saying, stop, no, no, stop, 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 don't say those words. Oh, no. He said it. 
when God comes on you and the people have affirmed you, you need nothing else to accomplish the task. Why would Jephthah pray a prayer that was unnecessary to pray? He gave more than was needed to accomplish the task. He didn't need to offer his baby. God was already going to do it. He offered because he felt so rejected and all of the outward affirmation could not make him feel accepted. So he thought, I've got to make sure that I'm really, really, really accepted with God so I need to give something more when he didn't need to. Brokenness will mess up your prayer life. Rejection will mess up your focus and how you relate to everybody and everything. Fathers, hear me. Unless you get healed on the inside, your seven-figure goal, and when you get it, won't fix you. When you make executive vice president, it won't fix you. You got to get healed on the inside. I do not get healed from preaching a good sermon. Happy. Get happy. More happy than if I preached a bad one. But I don't get healed. I get healed when I read my Bible on Monday. When I spend time with my God. When I asked him when I was 22, having grown up in a home that didn't look anything like what I got now. And I'm not complaining. I'm just testifying. I love my mother and father and would die for them and don't want anybody else to have raised bread. But my house was no fun. It was one of the happier days of my life when my daddy and mama got divorced. That's how bad my house was. At least they weren't going to fight anymore. And I wasn't going to have to be the referee. And I told God when I got right, if I am a failure at everything, I will not fail at being a good dad and husband. I don't care if I only have 20 people that ever follow me in my church. My seven kids will. My wife will. And they will think they have a hero in my house. That's what I'm hoping for, God. That is my prayer. Help me do that well. The lion's share of my ministry has been trying to figure out how to be a good dad and how to be a great husband. God healed me on the inside so I didn't overreact to what was wrong in my house and begin to compensate in areas where I didn't need to. He healed me. And as a result of being healed, I can be I can, be, I can be really normal on Tuesday. And what comes out of me on Sunday is an overflow of my normality on Tuesday. So I'm, I'm not performing. I'm just showing you what I live. That's all I'm doing. I'm not covering up. I'm not substituting. I'm just showing you how I live. And you can ask anybody who's close to me. This is what I've been doing for 30 years. Amen. Now, what, 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 it does, what, what it doesn't do is it doesn't make me great 30 years ago. That's why we only had 18 people following. But the better I get on Monday, the better I am on Sunday. So I'm not trying to perform. I'm just trying to give you the overflow of my life. So the better I live, this is why Paul said we go from what? Glory to glory. This covenant, and this is just free. That whole passage, Moses came down from the mountain. He put a veil over his face. 
because he, the glory of God was all over him and the people of Israel were afraid to look at his face. But if you read the passage over in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, well, it's not only that they were afraid to look at a glowing face, they were afraid to look at a glowing face. And Moses was concerned that the, the glory was fading and he didn't want them to see that the glory that was on his life was going away. That's why he put a veil over his face. The old covenant, powerful. But it had no lasting power for eternity. It was just the law. All it did is reveal what we could not do and condemn us if we did wrong. That's what the law did. The new covenant reveals what we can become. And so we put no veil over our face. And the old covenant came with glory, but it faded. The new covenant comes with glory, and it increases in your life so that you ought to be a whole lot better at everything you do and who you are a year from now than you are now because there's more glory from the new covenant and Jesus is being formed in you more. As Jesus is formed in me more, I become naturally better for you. I'll give you what comes out of my house now. Some, some people say, well, maybe he was thinking that a dog was coming out of his house to greet him, some kind of animal. It was an Israelite home. We superimposed our society over Israel. Dogs were unclean. This is not a commentary on whether you need to have a pet. <laughs> Don't do that. I'm just saying that, that the interpretation that it might have been a, no Israelite would have had an unclean animal in their house. Dogs weren't pets. They were work animals. That's all they were. So it wouldn't have been a dog. And sheep don't come out of the house to meet anybody. <laughs> They're in a flock someplace in a field. It was customary that when a man came home from war, that his children were the first to greet him. He knew he only had one baby, and she would be the first one out. So he knew he was sacrificing his baby for his victory. How many dads have sacrificed their children on the altar of their careers? Lord, I'll work 80 hours. Make me vice president. No, I won't be able to go to a recital. No, I won't be able to go over to the soccer game. Uh, yeah, I'm going to miss the football game. Uh, the choir, yeah, I'm going to miss that too. But give me my career motive. Give me my promotion. Mm. Now I realize that there are jobs that require... Men to be gone and out for extended periods. If you're in the military, you have to be gone sometimes away from your family. I got that. This is not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the intentional neglect of your family because you pursue other things. And there are folks I know who have put their families on the altar in order to fulfill their own desires. And may I say that you can have both. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 18. It's good to let go, to not let go of one thing while you grab onto something else. The man who is wise comes away with both. A lot of pastor friends of mine have very large churches and no family. None. And they look at me and they look at what I got and say, How did you do that? I said, Well, I prioritized my family, which meant that my church wasn't going to grow fast. This wasn't. We're going to stay small for a long time. But that's okay with me. I'll reach as many people as I can because I'm trying to 
to hold on to something else while I grab something else. Now, I don't know how wise I am, but wisdom is vindicated by our kids, by the fruit of its, of, of, of its decision. So it's taken us 30 years to get here. But we're here. But we're here. And I got my family. My 26-year-old son in New York, he begs me to come up and visit him. Gets on the phone and counsels with me about business decisions. I stay out of his life for the most part except to be a blessing. I'm not trying to exert any authority. But he calls me. Dad, when are you coming up? Can you and Mom come out, come up and just eat dinner with us and go see some shows with us? When your 26-year-old is begging you, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It means that all the mistakes you made, he forgave. (laughs) Now, let me close this out. I don't think he actually sacrificed his baby. Literally put her on an altar and burned her up. Let me tell you why. Number one, it was improper in Israel to to do human sacrifice. That's why God instituted an entire animal system of sacrifice. You might say, well, God told Abraham to sacrifice his boy. Then he said, stop. So he wouldn't commend it. Then you say, well, what about Jesus? Yes, he was a sacrifice for all mankind. But it it was different. People actually took him. Even though he gave his life, it wasn't like his mother offering him up at 12 and saying, here. Would the sacrifice have been just as efficacious as it would be now? Yes, and that it was a sinless man sacrificing himself. But it was different. Somebody actually apprehended him for sacrifice. Secondly, everything about the passage talks about her her virginity. Let me go and mourn the fact that I'm not going to have any kids or be with a man. And I want to take some people with me. And those people afterwards, all the women went to mourn the fact that she never had any kids. They didn't mourn her death. They mourned that she didn't have kids. Which to me means this, that the concept of burnt offering is much broader than just actually offering something up and firing it and seeing it consumed. That a regular offering in Israel was that which could, could be uh, participated in with the priest and the offerer. So if you offered a cow, cattle, a bull for a specific sin, you actually got to partake of it. It was a spiritual barbecue. That it was burned up, but you got to eat some, and so did the priest. If it was a burnt offering, it was completely consumed, and nobody got to eat. It was holy God's. What I believe happened to her, because of the emphasis on the the fact that she was mourning her virginity, is that she became the first Hebrew nun. That she was wholly given to God and could not have a man nor children. And... That that is the version. If you talk to the Catholic Church, they'll tell you that all their nuns understand the idea of what a burnt offering is. It is something, or a priest for that matter, completely given to God. No benefit does mankind receive of, of their, the fruit of their loins after they're gone. I think that fits more in line with the whole spirit of this passage because the other one is just flat depressing. Daddies. If you haven't acted properly, here's a moment to repent. Go to your kids and say you're sorry. I'm going to be a better dad. 
If you have a parent, a dad, who hasn't treated you well, forgive them. Don't live in that place of rejection and pain for the rest of your life. Let Jesus heal you. And don't go to him saying, listen, I want you to know I forgive you for you being like this and 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 like this. this." Something messed up about all that. You hearing me? You're accusing while you forgive. Man. And those of you who wish to be dads, don't ever sacrifice your kids on the altar of your career. You don't need to. God will anoint you in your career, and the people who employ you will affirm that you should be there. That's all you need. Let's pray.